If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to open them with me to the book of James once again. For those of you who are visiting this morning, this is our eighth week in the book of James, in this letter to the first century church, and this letter from the Holy Spirit to us here today as the modern day church. Uh, There is uh, a bulletin insert that has today's passage uh, on it, as well as uh, some Bibles available on the back table if you don't have a copy of, of God's Word this morning. Last week I used the phrase, and I borrowed it from another pastor, that the book of James is a street-level Christianity. It's, it's where the rubber meets the road, and I hope you have felt that as we have walked through uh, at least chapter one of this great letter, this dense letter of teaching for the Christian disciple. Um, I hope you've begun to respond to it, even by making concrete, intentional changes in your lives. That's what the, the Word preached is all about. That's what being not simply hearers of the Word, but doers of the Word is, is all about. Well, this morning we move to a section uh, that is uh, deeply theological and yet one that remains profoundly practical as well. Now, James has been leading us here all along, I would argue, through his assertions about things that deny our faith, and we've highlighted some of those through his assertions of things that uh, expose our faith and prove that our faith is genuine. This is, in a sense, this is the end of the matter for James, where we're about to go this morning. This is the definitive definition of the nature of a true and living faith. And so I would invite you to listen carefully as I read. If you're able, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. James chapter 2, picking up where we left off last week at verse 14 and reading through the end of the chapter. Listen as I read. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works When he offered up his son Isaac on the altar, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? 
For as the body apart from the Spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. What do a hungry Christian, an Orthodox demon, Father Abraham, and a prostitute have in common? Sounds like the, uh, the intro to a joke, right? It's not a joke. The answer is that they all teach us about faith. And one of the most difficult passages in this letter, making one of the most significant and foundational truths in all of Scripture, James helps us with four built-in illustrations that make, I think, two points that he wants us to be sure we get this morning. And the first one is this, beware of worthless faith. Beware of a worthless faith. And maybe you're sitting there thinking, whoa, 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 Nate, wait a second. I mean, faith, faith is faith, right? You believe, that's the end of the matter. And James says, not so fast. There's more to it. We need to go deeper. We must go deeper because there is a so-called faith that is cheap, that's counterfeit, that's lifeless, that's ultimately worthless. And you need to beware. To make his point, James gives us, right out of the gate, he gives us two negative illustrations or scenarios. And they, they both center around this command to love. We know the command to love, right? We remember it last week. I think we recited it together as a church, Jesus' words in Matthew 22. He's confronted. He's asked what the greatest command is, and he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Easily done, right? No, the Scriptures teach that to truly do this, to truly love as Jesus calls us to love, in order to be, using James' lingo, in order to be set free to live according to the law of liberty, something happens when a person has been given faith. And Ezekiel 36 describes it. It's the promise. He or she undergoes a heart transplant. I will give you a new heart, the Lord says, and a new spirit, and a new heart of flesh, and my spirit to live in you. And that new heart that has been given to someone who has faith, true faith, that new heart loves 
And if love isn't present, neither is true faith. It's, it's simply no good, he says in verse 14. That kind of faith is no good. And the word that that you see in your English Bibles is important because James is not saying that there isn't a faith that saves. And we'll get to that in a minute. He's merely stating that, that the kind of faith that he's about to illustrate is not that kind of faith. Beware of worthless faith. So here are the two scenarios. The first scenario is this. Worthless faith doesn't love others. It doesn't love others. Verses 15 and 16, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Now, whether this is a hypothetical situation that James has kind of brought up in his mind by way of the Holy Spirit, or whether this was something that he heard about happening in the first century church, we don't know, but in a sense, it doesn't matter. There's a fellow believer, a brother or sister in Christ, who is in real need. They lack the basic necessities of life, and you, so-called Christian, rather than giving them what they need, taking the time and the effort that it takes to fulfill that need, you tell them the ancient equivalent of, our thoughts and prayers are with you. Now, that's not a bad thing to say. That's not a bad thing to say, but if it ends there, it's worthless, To the man or woman cold and hungry, you say, be warm and be filled. To the man or woman cold or hungry, you actually say, well, you really really should get a better coat for this weather. It's getting cold out. And boy, you look a little lean. I think you need some meals. Go find yourself a meal. And James says, what? Do you see the absurdity of that? What what good is that? It does nothing. There may be sympathy, but there is no love. And if there is no love, then there is no faith. More than one time, we've already seen it in this letter, more than one time James will echo the words of his brother Jesus. Words that he heard for many years before he himself was gripped by the gospel and given eyes to see the glory of Christ. Matthew 25, you remember the scene, the Son of Man returns with his uh, angels in glory and as a shepherd he separates the sheep and the goats and he commends those who clothed him. It's Jesus talking those who clothed him, those who fed him, those who gave him something to drink. He says, truly I say to you, as you did it to the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And in 1 John 3 we read, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. For if anyone sees the Anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. How can God's love abide in him? Jesus and James and John and the Holy Spirit here this morning call us to love, especially the helpless, especially the hopeless. They They are our responsibility, James says. 
This is countercultural to our day, to our American individualism. We at times make light of our connection to one another. We've talked a little bit about that this morning in our discipleship hour. But going back to our conversation about the fatherless and the widow, how often we, we simply assume that there's a program for that. There's insurance for that. Somebody will take care of that. I don't want to get in anyone's business. Beware of worthless faith. Brothers and sisters, we can't do everything. Certainly, we can't do everything, but, but we can do something. Something that proves that our faith is not worthless. This is not optional. There's a bridge verse of sorts, verse 18. You can look at it there between where we have been and where we're going. James addresses this this hypothetical man who who thinks of faith and works kind of like we think of spiritual gifts. Well, you've got faith and I've got works, or I've got works and you've got faith. We can. James says, no. Both are necessary in the life of a believer. Beware of worthless faith. Worthless faith doesn't love others. But you know what? Worthless faith doesn't love God. This is the other even more significant part of Jesus' words, and it's fleshed out for us in verse 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Now, here at Ascension Presbyterian Church, we've got some wonderful theological minds in this room. And James is, in a sense, telling us that not one of them knows and understands and fears God more than the host of hell. James brings to mind especially for his Jewish readers, the Shema. This declaration from Deuteronomy 6.5, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It was a declaration that a Jew would regularly make concerning the true nature of God. And James says, even the demons believe that. They know that God is one. They know that He is the only God. They even tremble in His presence, fearing His power. Remember the instance in the book of Matthew where Jesus is confronted with the demons in the gathering, and and they say to Him, what have you to do with us? Have you come to torment us? They were afraid. They knew all the right things. They believed and they shuddered before Him. And they shuddered at the implication of that belief. But James says, that is not true faith. It's worthless because it lacks love for God. The demons know God, but they don't love Him. It's a reminder for us, especially us, that if we sit here this morning with theological precision and knowledge, even with awe and trembling before the majesty of God, and yet that does not produce in us love above everything else, 
Love that extends more than simply warm words to a brother or sister in need. Then our faith is worthless. It's, it's dead. It's unable to save us. See, these are, these are hard words. These are challenging words that James speaks to the church of Jesus Christ. But James doesn't just leave us there. He wants to show us how. And so that's the second thing I want us to remember this morning. Not only to beware of worthless faith, but simply this. True faith works. True faith works. You can think of that in two different ways. It, it works in the sense that it accomplishes salvation. We are saved by faith alone. True faith works. But true faith also works. We have all these phrases that we throw around in our culture, phrases that convey our common grace understanding as a society, as people, as hum human beings, that our words are simply not enough. You can think of some with me. Put your money where your mouth is. He talks a good game. Put up or shut up. Talk is cheap. I'll believe it when I see it. Actions speak louder than words. You see, we don't think much of empty talk when we interact with one another, but sometimes when it comes to our faith, we're reluctant to say, you say you believe that, but let me see it. Why? Well, I think because we rightly want to guard the gospel of grace. We must guard the gospel of grace, the truth that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. But what we must understand this morning from this passage, what I hope to show us is that James is not contradicting that we are saved by faith alone. James is not adding works. He's not adding works to your faith. He is defining what true faith needs to be. True faith doesn't just rest in our hearts. It doesn't just rest in our words, but true faith works. In our rich heritage as, as Presbyterians, our rich heritage struggled and wrestled with this very thing. The Westminster Confession of Faith, this document from the 17th century, poured over in prayer, in study, in time and energy, in the chapter on justification, on how we are made right with God. Chapter 11, paragraph 2, it says, Faith, thus receiving and resting on Christ and His righteousness, is the alone instrument of justification. Yet it is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces, and is no dead faith, but worketh by love. Just a few chapters later in chapter 16, these good works 
done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. True faith works. And so James wants to illustrate this. He wants to show us through two historical characters, two Old Testament historical characters that Boy, the Jews and the church would have been well steeped in these stories. I know many of you are well steeped in these stories. A story of loving God and a story of loving others. First, Father Abraham. Father Abraham. Verses 21 through 24. It's appropriate that Abraham is the illustration that James uses here because, well, not just because he's renowned and revered in Jewish history, but also because Paul, the Apostle Paul, the champion of justification, the champion of justification by faith alone, Paul will write of Abraham to the church at Rome. He will write about Abraham to the church at Colossae. And what will he say? Romans 4, 2, for if Abraham was justified by works, then he had something to boast about but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted as righteousness. Galatians 3, 6, just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now we're sufficiently confused. Is he justified by works, or is he counted as righteous? before God. Well, this is letting Scripture interpret Scripture. This is letting the context of what Paul was dealing with stand in contrast to what James is dealing with. Paul is not contradicting James. To these congregations, Paul needed to emphasize to them that they weren't able to gain acceptance before God through the law. All was grace. All is grace. While James Here in this letter, once his recipients, the church that he's writing to, to be warned of hypocrisy, of this easy believism. See, what's clear from the teaching of Scripture is that Abraham didn't earn his salvation. Just as Paul writes, God made promises to him, he believed those promises, and that's how he was made right before God, period. What was God's promise to Abraham? Well, God promised that he would make out of him a great nation, and he made that promise to him when he was old and when he was childless, and yet he believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And for years, Abraham didn't know how that promise would be fulfilled. Eventually, that promise would take flesh in the person, in the birth of Isaac, the son of laughter. And then some 35 to 40 years later, after it was counted to him as righteousness, some 35 to 40 years later, then the test of true faith is given. God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son. An unimaginable request. 
Was Abraham's faith mere words back then? Or was it a genuine love for God that would be willing to take the most precious thing in his life and give it to the Lord? Well, Abraham proved, proved some 35, 40 years later that his faith was true. He took his son up to the top of that mountain and he got ready to slay him and God provided. So Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness, but that belief, that belief worked. True faith works, it obeys, it loves God and it's willing to follow Him even when and especially when the road ahead is unclear and is uncertain. And it's a challenge to all of us this morning, those of us who know and love Jesus, is, is that the kind of faith that we have? Is that the kind of faith that we pray for and strive for? Four. The faith of Abraham. Well, James has one more real life example to show us. He takes us back to the Old Testament city of Jericho and to a prostitute named Rahab and to an opportunity to love God through loving his people. Abraham proved that he loved God. Would Rahab prove that she loved God? through loving his people. Her story is familiar to most. She was an ungodly Gentile woman who had heard of Yahweh's power. This most insignificant people had been rescued out of Egypt. They had been triumphantly led through the Red Sea. They had begun to head her way, mowing down their enemies. And in fact, now she has spies from this people in her home. And as her own people come to the door and demand that she turn over the enemies of Jericho that are in her place, she has a choice to make. She could surrender these spies and become citizen of the year in Jericho. Maybe she'd even get a key to the city despite her profession. But she would be labeled a traitor. It would be an act of treason. She would be putting her own life and the life of all of her family in danger if she protected them. What's she going to do? Well, the crux of it is this. Can, Can Rahab say that she believes in Yahweh and yet turn over the spies that are hiding in her home, these representatives of Yahweh's people, what, what does a true and living faith look like in this situation? Well, James tells us her works proved that her faith was true, that it was alive. And that's the nature of true faith. It's a radical break from the world. It's an intentional turn at loving God and loving your neighbor. Like Abraham, true faith is still doing that years, years after being counted as righteous. True faith works. 
And brothers and sisters, I don't want to, I, I don't want this passage to unnecessarily unsettle you in your faith. Is my faith worthless? Is it true? But as Paul said to the church at Corinth, examine yourselves, he told the church, to see if you are in the faith. Test yourselves. How is your faith showing itself? How is it living and breathing in thought, in word, and in deed? As Jesus said, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. This is not a call to perfection. It's not a call to perfect faith, but it is a call to love, to radical love for God and for neighbor, a love that flows from a faith, from a heart, a new heart that's fully devoted to Jesus. May God assure His own and bring conviction to those who are merely playing and saying what needs to be said, but not truly believing. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, these are hard words that we need to leave this place getting right and, and understanding that Christ has done all that needed, all that needs for all eternity to be done, and that we are saved in His merits and in His merits alone. But Father, as James challenges us this morning, there is a faith that is worthless. There is a faith that can give verbal assent to that historical reality, and yet still be far from it. Father, I pray, I pray for what I just said, that you would assure those in this room who are yours that truly they are yours, safe and secure forever in the arms of the Father. And that those who may be here this morning who have gone through the motions, have talked the talk, know the right answers, but have not truly believed with a new heart from You. I pray, Lord God, that You would give them that new heart, that You would give them the eyes to see themselves, that they might walk in peace, in holiness, according to your law, according to your ways. Father, this I pray in the name of Jesus, our glorious hope. Amen.